Our mission at Cross Point Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want people to know Jesus as their Savior our Lord and, and live their life for King Jesus. We're going to continue in our series through the New Testament book of Acts. And we've been calling this series the action of the church because that's exactly what happened in Acts. It's what the first century church was doing. So if you brought your Bibles, it's helpful to have a Bible open. Maybe you'll want to make notes in it. I think it's great to do that. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19 beginning in verse 23 and go all the way to chapter 20 verse 16. And I'm calling this sermon the effects of great preaching. Now, as we get into this text, hopefully you'll see, while I call it that, we're going to see a riot and another kid fall asleep in church, but that's the effects of great preaching. (laughs) Uh, We're actually skipping a large chunk of scripture in Acts 19, and the reason why we're skipping is because we actually covered it a number of months ago. Acts 19 is my favorite chapter in the entire book of Acts, and the part we're skipping is the part I preached earlier about there's this one demon-possessed guy and these seven brothers come up and they try to exercise him in the name of Jesus, even though they aren't following Jesus, followers of Jesus. And the demon says, hey, I know Jesus, Paul I'm familiar with, but who, who are you? And then that demon jumps on seven brothers and beats the clothes off of them. It's the text says that they left naked and bleeding. It's a great, it's my favorite text in all the book of Acts. Read it. And here's the best part about it. It really happened. Okay, this isn't a story, this is make-believe, that really happened. One guy beat seven guys up so bad they left naked and bleeding. So read that on your own. But here's one of the things I really enjoy about our study through the book of Acts. We are learning about what happened to start a lot of the churches that we read about in our New Testament. You know, all the time, Christian read, Christians, we read about these churches uh, in the Pauline letters. Paul wrote the church at Colossae. He wrote to Romans, the church of Rome. He wrote to the church in Corinth. He wrote all these, um, these, these different churches, and they're wonderful, wonderful letters. In fact, I got saved when a pastor accurately um, preached what happened in Colossians chapter 1. Changed my eternal destiny. I love it. Well, so when, he, when Paul wrote those, those churches, a lot of time he's writing to correct some theological issue they're having. That the church has gotten off track, and a lot of times Paul is writing to get them back on track. And so because of that, a lot of those, those letters are very theological in nature. And so they're very deep, very heavy in the theological truth that Paul wanted those believers to know in, in those churches. But those letters, a lot of times, they don't have the nuts and bolts, if you will. The how and why these churches all got started. For example, uh, when you read uh, the, the book of Philippians. Okay, the Philippians, it's, it's a thank you note, if you would, to um, the church. It's, it's, a, it's a letter also how to have joy despite terrible situations. That's, that's why Paul writes the church of Philippi. Well, then when we read the book of Acts... We meet Lydia, a a businesswoman that sells purple. We meet a demon-possessed girl who got freed. We we meet a Philippian jailer who was about to commit suicide and at the last second was stopped. And so now when we read the book of Acts, the letter to the church of Philippi becomes very, very personal, if you will. We get a lot of the how and why all these things came to be. Another example, when Paul wrote the church at Corinth, if you are with us a few weeks ago, we discussed what Corinth was like. Well, the church was a church gone wild in Corinth. Okay, they were having wild parties in church. They were allowing gross sexual misconduct. 
And so that, that's what's going on in the church. And Paul writes the church to correct what they're, what they're doing. Well, when you read the book of Acts, you meet the church in Corinth. And at least for me, I kind of understand how they got there. Not that it was okay, but I just understand a little better now. Well, now here we are in Acts 19. And Paul is, is in Ephesus. Well, when Paul wrote the church, to the, the book we call Ephesians, it is one of the deepest theological books in our entire New Testament. For example, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I would argue that is some of the deepest theological chapters and verses in such a tight little area. But now we read how the church in Ephesus got started. And really what I'm seeing, at least in my study, is the heart behind so many of Paul's letters. So to really understand the book of, of Ephesians, you've got to understand the church in Ephesus and how it came to be. Well, the city of Ephesus was one of the darkest cities, spiritually speaking, in, in the known world at this time. And I think you could probably make an argument if you want to say, no, it's Corinth, it's, it's Athens, it's, it's Ephesus, you know, maybe a couple others. I, I don't know if it, exactly which city is the worst. Just know it's really, really bad. Today, people want to talk about San Francisco, Hollywood, Vegas. Just know there's nothing new under the sun. Ephesus is a port city, okay? And with a port city comes what sailors do. The sailors go out to sea and they come back and they live fairly immoral lives. Well, Ephesus is also known for the temple of Diana. Diana is the Roman name of this, of this goddess, this false goddess, and her Greek name is Artemis. Okay, and that's the, the name that Luke uses as he's writing this letter. And we're going to read about Artemis in a minute. And we're going to meet some silversmiths. And these silversmiths make these silver statues of Artemis. And we're going to read about them in this chapter of the book. Well, legend says that Artemis was born in the woods. And that she is the goddess of wild animals. And she's also the goddess of the hunt. And she is the protector of, of young women. That's what her false ideology she teaches. And so what would happen, young women would often pray to her. And young women that wanted to become pregnant, they, they would pray to her, and, and the goddess would somehow help, her, help these women to become pregnant. Well, according to ancient mythology, Diana, or Artemis, is the daughter of Zeus and the twin sister of Apollo. And she is the goddess of fertility. Within the Roman Empire at this time, there was also 39 different temples that were scattered through the, the Roman Empire that was all dedicated to the worship of Artemis. So she is one of the chief cults, the chief worship cults, the religious cults in, in the Roman world at this time. But however, the mothership, HQ, the big one, the big temple for Artemis was located in Ephesus. Can anyone think of a of a cult that has many satellite temples and then all the followers somehow want to get to the, the mothership and worship their false cult there? I bet you can think of one. Welcome to the worship of Diana or Artemis and the home base HQ, the, the epicenter for everything that was of, of her worship happened in Ephesus. Well, let's see what's going on in Acts chapter 19. We're going to begin in verse 23. It says, about this time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. This is no little disturbance. This is a big disturbance concerning the way. And the way is what Christians were referred to in the first century. They didn't go by different denominations back then. There was no Baptist. There was no Methodist. There was no Lutherans. 
There was also no Calvinists. There was no Armenians. They're not arguing over the five different uh, letters in the tulip, if you will. There's only the way. And it's not a way. It's the way. And it's called the way because in John 14, Jesus said, he said this, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then Jesus says, and no one comes to the Father except through me. With that one statement, Jesus did away with what every major world religion says. Oh, you can get to God through Buddha. You can get to God through the teachings of of Hinduism. You can come to God through any way you want. You just have to be sincere. Jesus says no. That Jesus is the only way. And and he, he, he gave his life for all of mankind. So all are welcomed. But he is the only way. Well, in the book of Acts, the earliest description moniker for Christians was the way. And let's keep reading. Look in verse 24, what happens next. It says, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. You know, if you go to any biblical city, they're always going to have these shops. You go in their souvenir shops. You can go in there and you buy these little chotskis and you, you bring them back to your friends or family. Oh, look what, you, what I bought you. I was thinking about you while I was on vacation and this is what I brought to you. And, and if you go to Bethlehem or Jerusalem, it has about a million of them. There's tons. Well, they have them in Ephesus too. But, but what is being sold here, what Demetrius is making, is, is a lot more than just some little souvenir. Okay, what he is making is really for somebody's own personal worship. It, it, they're an idol that, that he is making that, that people are to go to and bow down to and to worship. And Demetrius is a notable man. He's, he's got influence in Ephesus. He's, he's got stature. And what he does, he gets all the people together and he's going to start a riot because he doesn't like what the Apostle Paul is doing. Verse 25. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades and said, Men, you know that, that from this business we have our wealth. At this moment, Dimitri is being very honest. He, he's revealing his motives. And the reason he's getting upset is because the gospel is messing with his money. It, it's his pocketbook that's being affected by the, um, by, by the gospel. We skipped over it, but if you back up a few verses in Acts 19... The, the gospel is exploding, and it's going all over to, uh, to, to Asia. In fact, there was just in a few verses before, these people got saved, and they brought all their magic books and everything that pointed to their false god, and they burned them. They burned them in the sight of everybody. They're saying, we're leaving this god, and we're going to follow the one true god of the Bible. And the text tells us this isn't only happening in Ephesus. This is happening, it says, all over Asia. Keep reading, verse 26. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only in this trade of ours may, may come to distribute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be uh, even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worships. Then they, heard, then they heard this, then they were enraged, and they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companion in travel. 
You know, there's an old saying that goes that you, you can never step on a man's wallet and not hear him yell, ouch. Because the most sensitive part of everybody's anatomy is their wallet. And Paul is hitting these silversmiths in their most sensitive area in their money. And so you're thinking, well, how is he doing this? How is he doing this? It's just by simply by spreading the gospel. Sp- Paul spoke the truth about this God that, that came. And he robed himself in human flesh and he went to a cross, not because of his sin, but because you and I are sinners. And then if we come to him by faith, we can be forgiven and saved. And Paul is simply just speaking the truth and the negative consequences are falling out to the followers of all these false religions. So at this moment, Demetrius is mad. Because again, he knows that Paul is messing with his money. I'll say messing with someone's money is like messing with their emotions. And here, that's exactly what Paul is doing. And he, so what Demetrius wants to do, he wants to get all the craftsmen and, and whip them into a frenzy. And so they'll come and they'll grab Paul and they'll drag him out of the city and at least kick him out of the city, if not kill him altogether. And this is what Demetrius is saying. He's saying everywhere this Paul goes, this kind of stuff follows him. He's turning people away from idols in every single city he goes to. I would say, what a pick-me-up speech, right? How would you like to hear people that are adamantly against what you believe saying this about you? You know, I heard a story of someone in our town that won't go to a certain place because there might be a member of this church that is there, and if they go there, they might hear the gospel. Amen. Yeah, you're following me with that. God bless that person. You know, that should be an encouragement to us because I hope somebody says that about me someday. Everywhere Pastor John goes, people keep getting saved. Well, amen. This is what these craftsmen are, are doing. They're wanting to tear Paul to shred. And shreds, and they, they go to the theater, and they, they want to grab him. They want to they tear him apart. Well, this theater is one of the largest theaters in the ancient world. And they go there, and they seize these men, Gaius and Aristarchus and the Macedonians that are traveling with Paul. And this, at this moment, what's happening, the spiritual temperature is starting to rise in Ephesus. But at the same time, you know, or excuse me, earlier, Paul had found favor in Ephesus. But it's been a couple years by now. We just heard, if you back up a few verses, you'll read that it's been two years. Paul has been in Ephesus for two years. He first went to the synagogues and he preached the gospel. And they said, hey, we want to keep hearing you preach. We want to hear more about this this Messiah you, you say Jesus is. And that's what they wanted until they didn't want to hear it anymore. And then he got out of there and he went to the school of Tyrannus. And again, that happened earlier in chapter 19. And that's where it says he taught there for two years. And Luke tells us that all of Asia is hearing about what Paul was doing from Ephesus. And, and, and everything's been golden so far until now. Okay? And now is beginning a little difficult in Ephesus. Religiously speaking, Paul has been on a hit list since Acts chapter 9 when he got saved. Um, but now it's starting to turn. Now the, 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 the spiritual temperature is starting to turn in Ephesus. And so at this moment, the threat level is high for Paul in Ephesus. And you know what? It's high for believers today in Ephesus. Turkey is turning more and more radical day by day. But the threat is not from the worship of Artemis. The threat is from Islam. The church in Ephesus was, it was a place where there was once that people had never heard the name of Jesus and then Paul came in and he preached and there was hundreds if not thousands of people that, that turned to Christ. 
But today, you can hardly find a Christian there at all. There are so many areas that the gospel once penetrated to, and there were so many believers that came to faith in Christ. You could read about it if we turn to the book of Revelation. We'd read about these seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Well, those churches have vanished today. Where are those churches that, that were spoken of then, that all these churches that Paul planted, and the answer is they're gone. Today, believers in modern-day Turkey make up, statistically it's said, 0.2% of the population. And that's all different varieties of Christians. And so this is why I'm saying this. I need us to recognize that if it can happen in churches like Ephesus, like Colossae, like Corinth, it can happen to Crosspoint. Okay? Think about it. The, the church in Ephesus had some of the who's who for their pastors. They had the Apostle Paul. They had Timothy. They had the Apostle John. Question, who's the pastor in Ephesus today? They don't have one. They don't have a pastor because there is no church in Ephesus. The church doesn't exist anymore. In fact, there's hardly any believers in Ephesus. And you ask, how? Why? How can they go from a flourishing church that is preaching Jesus and thousands of people getting saved to today when there's hardly a Christian at all? And I'll say it happens when a church becomes comfortable. When a church becomes comfortable, they begin to beat their chest and talk about all the things they did yesterday. And when they do that, then they start to take care of themselves. They start to make all their programming about themselves. And then the outreach from the church... It stops. And then they don't even know it yet, but at that time, the church is starting to die. And the church is on life support at that time to keep all its current members happy. And, and at the same time, a church stops realizing that there's people outside the church that are dying and going to hell every day. And all at the same time, the church is having some amazing fellowships for those who are its current members. And I'm pointing this out because I don't want us to think for one hot second it can't be us. Crosspoint Baptist Church is doing some great things today. But the second we stop and we take our eyes off the gospel. And as soon as we start running things like, well, this is the way we like to do it. After all, this is the way it's always been done. We will quickly become the church in Ephesus. Let's get back to the riot that's happening. Look in verse 30. It says, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. You know, I say I really admire Paul's style. And I'll say it like this. Paul's got no backup in his game. Okay? Paul doesn't know where reverse is at. Later in the book of Acts, Paul is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to get arrested in the temple. And he's going to be brought to the Roman garrison. There's going to be this mob outside the temple courts that are going to want to tear him to shreds. And Paul's going to say to the Roman guard, he's going to say, hey, let me go talk to him. And the guard's going to say, are you crazy? Those people are going to tear you limb for limb. And Paul's going to say, hey, I'm one of them. I, I can, they'll listen to me because I, I, I know their language. And that's the type of guy that Paul is. The type of guy that Paul isn't, Paul's not like, hey, why don't you go talk for me? Let's let somebody else do it. No, Paul's always going, let me be the guy to go. But notice at this moment that Paul wanted to go to the people, but the disciples wouldn't let him go. Paul's like, hey, let me go to the theater. Let me talk to these people that hate my guts. And yet the disciples wouldn't let him go. It's, it's too dangerous. They didn't want Paul to be placed in unnecessary danger. And so I'll say this, they're protecting him. 
And that's wisdom. And that's wisdom right there. But what's interesting, look what happens in the very next verse, verse 31. And when some of the Asiarchs, an Asiarch is an elected official. When the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him or were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now again, I, I said this a minute ago, but Paul's been on a hit list ever since his conversion from Judaism to Christianity. But that's primarily in Jerusalem. Okay? The secular world, the wor- rest of the Roman world, for the most part, has, been, has really been not really concerned with Christianity up until this point. It wasn't until Caesar Nero came onto the scene and the rulers after Nero that really the persecution of Christians outside of Jerusalem got bad. And that happened because Nero came in and he burned a big portion of Rome and he blamed it on the Christians. So at that point, things got really hostile for Christians. But not in the rest of the world. Okay, earlier. And it's interesting that right here, Paul was made friends with some of these um, government officials. Verse 32. Now some cried out one thing. Some, some another. For the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. So at this moment, this mob is really mobbing out, if you will. They're like, we're mad. We're angry. We're going to get this guy. Why are you going to get this guy? We don't know, but we're really angry. Let's get him. Verse 33, look what happens next. And some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. So this Alexander, he's a Jewish citizen, and he must be a Jewish citizen with some sort of prominence. Now, Jews in the ancient world, they have a problem. And really, most of these cities have a problem with the Jews, because a Jew, it's against the law to worship an idol. It's really, it's out out of bounds to have a picture, a painting, or any statue of any kind, whether animal or human, because you might worship it. And so that means a good Jew uh, will never do this. And that's, it's forbidden in Judaism because of the second commandment. So if you go to a city like Ephesus, and there's idolatry everywhere, the Jews have a real problem because they're not supposed to worship idols. But in this town, there's this leading spokesman, Alexander, and he's drawn out of the crowd. Now, here, here's just an interesting side note. His name's Alexander, and he's in the city of Ephesus. Well, later in 1 Timothy, Paul writes Timothy, who is the pastor in Ephesus. And he writes about this guy, Alexander. And he refers to him, Alexander the coppersmith, if you were turned there. I wonder, is it the same guy? We don't know. We just know that at least they have the same name. But I'm saying, it could be the same guy. And he's the guy that raises his hand to give a defense. And look what happens in verse 34. It says, but when... They recognized that he was a Jew. For about two hours, they all cried out in one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you hear this mob? They're crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Second verse, same as the first, could get better, but it's going to get worse. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, my ears are bleeding just reading that. It took me like 15 seconds. Look what happens next, verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stones that fell from the sky, seeing that these things cannot be denied? 
You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in a regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the riot's over. The crowd is gone. And everything's over. And today, the temple of Diana's gone. Artemis, gone. If there's any other temples, the temple to Zeus, it's gone. All the temples that dotted the landscape is gone. Demetrius is gone. The silversmith union is gone. It's all ancient history. There is an ancient archaeological dig. And if you go there today, it's pretty cool. You can see what happened. So it's all gone. You know what we still have? We have four books in our New Testament that are dedicated, written to the church in Ephesus. We have the book of Ephesians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and this little postcard, this little chapter in the book of Revelation. But see, we need to remember that there was once something great that happened in Ephesus. That there was a generation of people that got excited about Jesus, about God, this God that, that came for us, and they turned to him. And there was a generation of people that got excited about the teaching of God's word. And, and there was Paul that was preaching and pastoring this church and sharing the word with God with them. And then Timothy picked up the baton of faith and took off where, where Paul had left off. And if a church that had the Apostle Paul as their pastor can die, again, it can happen to us too. Because about 40 years after what we're reading here in Acts chapter 19, King Jesus said something about the church in Ephesus. You would read with me in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. This is Jesus. This is King Jesus speaking about the church in Ephesus. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those things that are evil, but have tested those that call themselves apostles and are not, and found found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That's what Jesus says about Ephesus. So far, straight A's, home run, good job, Ephesus. You're blown out of the water, but wait, there's more. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you abandoned the love you had at first. Literally, Jesus says you left your first love. You've left your priorities of loving Jesus, loving God, and eventually, over the years went by, after generations and generations... Christian testimony in Ephesus was gone. And Jesus didn't say you lost your first love. You abandoned it. You ditched it. You left it. You you walked away from it. Jesus said, I know your works. I know how busy you are. I see all your programming. Good job, but you left your first love. If you know the Gospels, there was an evening when Jesus was at the house of some good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Martha was busy cooking and making all this stuff. And she goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, don't you know what I'm doing? 
He says, Martha, Martha, you're busy and distracted with so many things. Mary has chosen the better part, which, which will not be taken from her. She's sitting at my feet, Martha. You're not. You're busy. Good job. Good meal, Martha. But you need to balance your work and your worship. He says, you need to sit at my feet before you go to work for me. And that's us. We need to balance our worship and our work. It's not about work. When we get our worship right and get at the feet of Jesus and recognize the awesomeness and grandeur and sovereignty of, this, of the God-man, that's when it all starts to make sense. That we would never abandon our first love. We need to recognize that it's, it's seldom this, this, this leaving your first love. It's never a blowout. It's not like a tire on your car. You're driving, driving down the road, boom, and it's gone. No, it's almost like a boat that is tied to a dock. What happens when you untie it? It doesn't just zoom to the other side of the lake. It's just a slow fade over time. We need to remember our first love. Balance our work and our worship so that we don't become like the church in Ephesus. Pick it up, keep reading. Chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, so, so the, the riot is over, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he encouraged, he's going to use lots of words, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And he had gone through all the regions and, and given them much encouragement. He came to Greece. There he spent three months He's, he's three months here in verse 3. And when the, the plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria, and he decided to return to Macedonia. Sopater, Sopater, and for some reason that name is really hard for me to say, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and, and, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychius and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us in Troas. So Paul is encouraging these men. He's encouraging them with lots of words, teaching the Bible, and by extension, that it should encourage us. And, and so Paul stayed with them three months. And you've got to wonder, why is Paul there three months? Well, theologians speculate it, it very might have well, might, been wintertime, and it's not wise to travel during wintertime. Can anybody sympathize with Paul? Yeah, I don't like to travel during the wintertime around here. But here's the point, though. But you notice that tra- Paul is not traveling alone. He, he's got his, his guys with him. He's got his boys. And the list of these guys, it doesn't really mean a lot to us. Because we really don't know a lot about them other than they're with Paul. But if you notice this, Paul is with them. He's not alone and he's encouraged. And that should speak volumes to us. Because when Paul is with his, his believers, he's encouraged. But if we back up in the book of Acts just a little, he's alone and he's discouraged. Here's the application for us. The Christian life cannot be lived very well alone. If you're a Christian, you need corporate worship. We stream these, 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 uh, the, this worship service online, so if you're at home, you, you can worship there in the comfort of your own home. But that's meant to supplement corporate worship. It's also if you want to forward a message to a friend, maybe something that's said here really encouraged you and you think it'd be encouragement to someone else, you can grab the the message online or podcast and send it to somebody. But it's not meant to replace corporate worship. 
Because when we worship by ourselves, what we do is we make worship all about us. And we're not supposed to worship us. We're supposed to worship Jesus. Also, you can't serve when you're alone. We, we, we need the church to, to serve not only our community, but other believers. It's not that God needs my service. Not, God's not up in heaven saying, please, God, John, worship me, preach for me, because that makes me a strong God. That's false God worship. That's what Zeus and Artemis and all those Greek gods taught. Our God is self-sufficient. He is sovereign. He doesn't need us, but yet he chooses to work through us. And God says, if you really love me, show your love for me as you serve others. And you can't do that very well without the church. Look in verse number six. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them in Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked to them. Intending to depart the next day, he prolonged his speech until midnight. Paul preached until midnight. I want to say something about that, because there's a movement today that says preachers only preach for about 20 to 25 minutes. I got a clock right in front of me. I know I've been preaching for about 30 minutes now, and I'm not done yet. There's more sermon to come. The reason why people say that you know a sermon's supposed to be be 20 to 25 minutes is because television shows today are 22 minutes long. Add in commercials, and that is as long as people's attention span can handle. And here's what I'll say to that. When I was in college, I was going doing my undergrad study. I took some worthless classes, okay? And I had to do that to get my degree. Anybody sympathize with me? Oh, yeah. And when those guys started talking, they started talking for like 60 minutes. And I got to copy down everything that they said. And it didn't mean a hill of beans. But yet, I'm going to take a test on this later. And here's the thing. What they're talking about isn't anywhere near as important as the Bible and Jesus and forgiveness of sins. To say that we can't sit and listen to a sermon for 40 to 45 minutes, that's ridiculous. And here's the Apostle Paul. He's preaching to midnight. Don't you ever give me a hard time of being a long-winded pastor. Paul's preaching to midnight. And did you notice what they, what they, when they met and what they did? They met on the first day of the week. That's what Luke tells us. They met on Sunday. And that's interesting because for centuries, the Jews have been meeting on Saturday. And if you're a New Testament reader, we usually call it the Sabbath. The Jews would call it the Shabbat. And, and something's changed. They're meeting on the other day. And what are they doing? They're, they're having the Lord's Supper. They're taking communion that's preceded by a love fest, which is it's essentially an, a, a potluck, if you will. You know, all the time I'm trying to convince people that these people are Southern Baptists. You know, what's more Southern Baptist than having a potluck? Well, here they are. They're having a potluck. But back to the question was, when did the Sabbath day change? Well, the answer is the Sabbath day never did change. The Sabbath day still is on Saturday. Well, then why don't Christians worship on Saturday rather than on Sunday? Well, Emperor, here's the answer. Emperor Constantine changed the official worship day in 321 AD. But Christians don't worship a Sabbath. Okay? The, the Sabbath day never did change. It's still Saturday. Now, if you want to worship on Saturday, go ahead. The Bible says keep the Sabbath holy, but that is a covenant for Jews, and we are Gentiles. But if you want to do that, go ahead. But no, you don't have to. 
The Apostle Paul, he calls worshiping these Sabbath days, these holy days, he's going through all these rituals. Paul calls that to his church, church, in, the church in Galatia, he calls that worthless elementary principles of the world. And some people that really offends. Well, that offends you. Take it up with the Apostle Paul. I didn't say it. He said it. But then he says to the church at Colossae, he says, no one, let no one judge you in food and drink. And so if you want to have a bacon cheeseburger, go ahead. I had one last night. They're delicious. But he says, let no one judge you in food or drink regarding festivals or new moons or Sabbath. Paul says, let no one judge you on the Sabbath. So don't judge anybody. Because all that stuff is just religious nonsense. And here's where I'm going with that. Because there's a, a big movement in some Christian circles that say, well, you have to go through all these Jewish customs to really experience Jesus. And for anybody that's listening online, I'm using air quotes. Okay? That, that you have to go to a Seder dinner to really experience Jesus. You know what? I've been to a Seder dinner. It's cool. And, and, and to really go through it and see how all these different elements, it, it points to, to Jesus but to say that you have to do all that stuff to experience Jesus, that's a bunch of nonsense. You don't experience Jesus by a Seder dinner or a festival of booze or anything else. The only way to experience Jesus is through a genuineness of your hearts. All that other stuff is just supposed to point you to Jesus, nothing more. But back to the question, why did the early Christians here uh, begin to worship on Sunday rather than on Saturday? Well, what happened on Sunday? The answer is the resurrection. Jesus came out of the tomb on Sunday. He was, he was tortured and crucified on a Friday, buried on a, in a uh, tomb on, on Friday night, and he stayed there three days. And on Sunday morning, he rose from the grave. So why do we worship on Sunday? And the answer is the resurrection. We celebrate the final redemption of Jesus, and he died and rose again. Keep reading. Start in verse 7. And on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with him, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight, verse 8. And there were many lamps in the upper room where, where we gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul still talked longer and being overcome by sleep, he fell from the third story of the window and was taken up dead. So here's Paul. He's preaching until midnight. And then he keeps preaching. Paul's a guy that's got lots and lots of words. And they're in this room. It's lit by oil lamps. And so the, war the room's probably pretty warm, a little auction deprived. And they just finished a big meal. And here's a young teenage boy named Eutychus. A good friend of mine preached this text years ago, and what I remember most about it was his title. He, he titled his sermon, Poor Eutychus, after this kid. I think nobody else thinks it's hilarious. I think it's hilarious because he died. But anyways, spoiler alert, he's going to come back from the dead. And just in case you're wondering, because maybe you're wondering, well, was he really dead or was he just mostly dead? A little ode to Princess Bride there for you. Um, here's the question. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. What was Luke's profession? The doctor. That's right. Well, if the doctor says that Eutychus is dead, guess what? Eutychus is dead. The doctor has called the time of death. The point is, don't ever fall asleep while a pastor is preaching. You might die. 
Okay, that should be hilarious. Okay, no, that's not the point. That's not the point. But it is still terribly funny. Keep reading, verse 10. I lost my place. Verse, excuse me, 10. Where is it? There it is. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking up him up in his arms, said, Don't be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a little while longer, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. There was a time in the Old Testament, if you remember your Bibles, that a young boy died and a prophet by the name of Elijah did something. He, he stretched out over that boy and prayed that God would, would bring him back from the dead. And guess what? God did. There was a resurrection. And I think here Paul knew if God did it one time, God can do it again. And so Paul preaches... A young man falls out of the window and dies. Paul raises him back up from the dead, has a meal, and keeps preaching. Paul's like, I'm not done with my sermon. I got more words for you. And again, don't ever give me a hard time about going long. But does anybody know what Eutychus means? It means fortunate. I think he was very fortunate that Paul was preaching, not me, because he'd still be dead. But anyways, look what happens, verse 13. But going on ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending to go by land. There's something you need to know. It's a 20-mile walk that Paul's about to do here. Paul says, hey, you take the boat, and I'm going to walk. Paul's the type of guy that preaches to midnight. A kid falls out of the window, dies. He brings him back to dead for life, excuse me, feeds him a meal, and keep preaching till, till daybreak and then says, hey, come with me for a 20-mile walk. Kind of crazy, right? But you got to you think, why would he do this? And I think the reason why, he still has more words for him. Paul still has more of the, the Bible that he wants to preach to him. Years ago, I took one of my favorite Bible studies I ever did. It was, it was called Learn the Bible in 24 Hours by Chuck Missler. And it was over 12 weeks. We would go there, and it was two-hour class. And when Chuck starts talking, it's like drinking from a fire hose. You're like, holy cow. And he went through the entire Bible in 24 hours. Well, I think the Apostle Paul didn't do it over the course of 12 weeks. He did it in one night. But I think Paul is saying, hey, I got so much I want to tell you and teach you. Come with me. I'm going to walk and I'm going to keep preaching about Jesus. Verse 14. And when he met, them at, excuse me, met us at Assos, he took him on, we took him on board and went to Mentaline. And sailed there we came the following day to Chios. And the next day we touched in Samos. And the next we, after we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus. So that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So here's what Paul is doing. He, he's going from Macedonia. He wants to, to bypass Ephesus and he wants to get Jerusalem. He has a very short window of time he's trying to operate on. And, and so he doesn't want to spend too much time there. But yet he still wants to meet with the leaders. And, and he wants to have some time with them. He wants to have a final word of encouragement to the church in Ephesus. Lord willing, we're going to look at this next week. And so Paul had a pretty amazing time in Troas, wouldn't you say? A great meal, a very, very long sermon. Kid dies, he brings him back to life and keeps on preaching. 
And the kid died because he fell asleep in church. You know where I sit? I can see everybody who's sleeping. I can. I know who's paying attention. Usually it's Kamari. But he's awake today. (laughs) And to tell you the truth, if someone falls asleep, I'm not offended if someone sleeps during my message. My dad is the world heavyweight champ of falling asleep when he sits down. And he'd tell you there's two tricks to, to falling asleep. Step one, be old. Step two, sit down. And the rest does itself. So I'm not bothered by people sleeping in church. But you know what does bother me? Sleepy hearts. There's people that come here week after week after week. And yet, spiritually speaking, they're asleep. There's no change in their life. They're just hearing words. They're going through the motion. When yet, we're supposed to be sold out for the sake of Christ. That there's a great God that desperately loved us. That, that knows uh, who we are at our deepest cores, and we are sinners. And yet he came and he paid for that so we could tell the whole world about him? I have three questions, and I have the questions. I'm not going to give you the answers. The answers are for you to, to figure out. And if you're apt to taking notes, these might be three questions that are worth writing down. But here's question number one. The Apostle Paul was a man that lived his life in a way that more and more people would come to know Christ. How can you be like Paul? How can you be like Paul? Paul was doing whatever it took to reach a lost world with the gospel. He would go to one place, get get stoned to where they thought he was dead, and he got took up and kept preaching the gospel. There was nothing that was off limits to Paul. He was willing to be shipwrecked, be be shackled and chained so he could tell people about Jesus. So the question is, how can you be like Paul? Question number two. Are you living your life in such a way that your church will never become like the church in Ephesus while you're a member? If so, how? The church in Ephesus was a great church, reaching thousands of people, but yet today it's dead. It happens when members stop caring that there's a world right outside our doors as we sit here in, this, in our comfy chairs with the air conditioner where it's cool. There are people outside dying and going to hell every day because they don't, have, don't know Christ as their Savior. People have to recognize that there are sinners and our sin separates us from God, but yet God loves us and came and died for us. How can you be a member to tell a lost world about that? Here's the last question. Are you awake? Are you awake of what's going on in this world around you? The spiritual darkness in our own city? Right here, you don't have to go very far to find people that don't know Christ as their Savior. That the emptiness that people live in, with no purpose in life, most people's purpose is to make some money, go to the mountains, have a great camping trip, come back to work on Monday and do it all over again. But yet God has called us to go and tell a lost world about him, that he died for our sins so that we can be with him for all eternity. Romans 13, verse 11, the apostle Paul writes, besides this, you know the time and the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The time is now. We aren't promised tomorrow. So often people will say, well, maybe I'll accept Jesus as my Savior tomorrow. The Bible also says it's appointed for men to die once after this judgment. If you don't know Jesus, I would beg you to do this now. 
You see, there must come a, a moment of spiritual awareness where you recognize, I'm not right with God. And I'll never be right with God. There's nothing that I can do to make up for my past sins. And there's nothing I can do to make up for my future sins either. That my sin has created a debt between me and a holy God. That's why Jesus came. That when Jesus went to the cross, that the very wrath of God was poured on him. Not because he's a sinner, but because you and I are a sinner. That the Father treated the Son like a sinner so that he could treat sinners like he does his Son. That's amazing. And how can we be forgiven? The Bible says by faith. By, 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 by grace through faith you've been saved. It's not about you know, doing something good. It's not about coming to church. It's not about tithing. It's not about doing any of these things. It's not about being baptized or anything else you want to point to. It's by Jesus and Jesus alone. When you place your full weight in him, when you just give your life to Christ, you say, you're the great God. I'm not. That's when you're saved. And the Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. See, here's what's tragic. Every worldview teaches, man, hopefully you can be saved. Oh, if you're good enough, maybe God will love you enough to take you to heaven or just not hate you enough to send you to hell. No, the Bible says you will be saved. It's a beautiful promise that whoever calls the name of the Lord, they will be saved. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that now. If you've never cried out to Jesus to save you, do as you sit there or maybe in the comfort of your home. Say, Lord, save me. I am a sinner. You're a holy God and Savior that came and died because of what I have done. I want to place my faith and my trust in you and you alone. Save me from my sins. In Jesus' holy, precious name, amen.